preaching here, uh, several people made requests, but I'm staying. need you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This passage that was just read to us it is 11, 30, 25, and I go until when? Till 3, 3. Thank you, brother. Huh? <laughs> uh, somebody tell me. Phil Young. You got to make it to the bat to the restaurant before the Baptist. What time? What time do I need to finish? Somebody needs to tell me. Are we done already? Uh, you're out of luck then. Twelve ish. All right, that's thirty five minutes. Let's see if we can do this. Uh, in Matthew chapter five verse twenty, he says. Jesus is speaking and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that assumes, first of all, there's not much wiggle room there, is there? I mean, if it, your righteousness, our righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we're not making the cut. But it also assumes that the Pharisees had some righteousness. And that's not how you and I think. We think scribes, Pharisees, what? Hypocrites. In that day and age, a hypocrite was just an actor. It was just a traveling troupe putting on plays. And they got five actors and ten roles. So somebody is going to be playing some, several somebodies, are going to be playing several different roles. And they would drop behind a curtain and change the mask and pull off one toga and put on something else and go back out there. And they were called hypocrites. It meant more than one face. That's what the word meant. It didn't have the negative connotation that hypocrite has now because probably of what Jesus said in the woes to the Pharisees, the seven woes to the Pharisees. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Initially, though, the Pharisaea were the good guys. Israel was going to divide. This was in the intertestament period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And some people wanted to put a high priest in who not only was not a Levite, let alone a descendant of Aaron, this guy was an Edomian. He's not supposed to be a priest at all. And they're going to make him high priest. And a bunch of the Jewish people said, you do that, it's going to split this church. And they said, we're going to do it. And they did. And a bunch of people separated themselves. Hebrew word, Ferushea, the separated ones. So they were the good guys. They weren't the liberals. They were the conservatives. We're going to, we commit ourselves to the precise fulfillment of both the written and the oral traditions of what God had to say. They weren't the bad guys. Eventually, by the time Jesus gets there, they kind of were because they were trusting in themselves. My commandment keeping is what's going to save me. I'm going to tithe all of the mint and the dill and the cumin. See, I wasn't just doing 
the 10% of uh, my sheep sales, I was going to even do the spices in the kitchen. That's how holy I am. One of them says, uh, I fast twice a week. Remember that guy? Pharisee and the publican? Do you remember him? Go like this. Yes, I remember him. I fast twice a week. The law said you were to fast one time, other than some specific instances, like when they were going to go into battle, when they were going to go down and fight on the mountains or the plains, as our brother spoke to us at the table. Uh, they were to fast. They were only required to fast one day a year, and that was on Yom Kippur, the day of covering Yom Kippur, we'd call it. That's the only. So what this Pharisee is saying is, the law says I got to do this once a year. I, I'm doing it twice a week. I am 103 times more righteous than the law requires. They're trusting in themselves. That's what I want to talk about. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Five, in the book of Romans, Paul deals with this idea of righteousness five times. Now, I've preached this here before, but it is a long time ago. Or maybe it was at Augusta or at a lecture, state lectureship or something. I think I did it here. Because some people were saying, are you going to preach? I want you to do that thing on the righteousness in Romans. I said, you remember that sermon? They said, yeah. And I said, well, then you preach it. I'll preach something else. But they said, no, go ahead and do it. What does Paul say? Is it Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, to write the same thing again? Is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. So I guess that's what we're going to do. Five types of righteousness in the book of Romans. Four of them are 100% righteous. One of them is not. Righteousness is not the same as holiness. Righteousness is not the same as glory, as our brother was teaching us about those words in the class. He was differentiating there. Uh, uh, holy, uh, righteousness is not the same as holiness. Or even justification up to a point. It's not the same thing. So what's Paul talking about? If he uses it five different ways, how am I supposed to know? If my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, how are you supposed to know? Because Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. We have to be that. So how do we know? Let's take a look at a couple of passages here. Before I really get started, I want to thank this congregation for your support for our work over in Whitehall, in the Church of Christ of Whitehall. And it's not our work if you're, I mean, Whitehall's work, if you're helping to support it. At that point, it becomes our work. The first stage of every sacrifice is presentation. And when that basket comes by and you take some of the money with which God has blessed you and you put it in there, that's presentation. If you were at the temple in Jerusalem and you had offered sin offering or burnt offering, let's say, and you went up there and you made presentation of this animal, from the moment of presentation on, it is no longer yours. It belongs to God. And some officiant is going to decide what to do with what belongs to God. That part still remains. We 
put money in the collection plate, and some officiant, maybe the shepherds, maybe deacons in charge of benevolence, or mission work, or whatever, they decide what's going to be done with that money. And some of it is going to the Whitehall Church of Christ for our work there, and I want to thank you very much for that. We thank you very much for that, from the bottoms of our hearts. We do appreciate what the Church of Christ at Belgrade is doing to further... Uh, the seeking and the saving of the lost over in our area. We go a lot of places preaching and, and teaching, and, and you're helping us accomplish that. There's a little thing that I do. It's not a little thing. It started out as a little thing. Where uh, every day, 24-7, 365, or 366 some years, uh, where I put out a little texting this uh, on a phone, a cell phone, so people can... Uh, be encouraged and, and disciplined to read their Bible through cover to cover in one year. And then there's some comments that go on that as well. In fact, two people, uh, Don Rogers and Fred Nelson, received that on a daily basis. When I started that thing out, it was, I don't know, four or five years ago, it was, I think there were 16 people. It went up to 120, and they're around the world. I don't even know what it is now. Some of these things are going out to missionaries who then translate them into German or Italian or Chinese or whatever. And it gets sent on to their congregations, some of whom forward it to other people. So I really have no idea how many people are getting this. I know of some. There's, there's a lady who is um, in the administration of a denominational school of preaching in the United States, and she's getting this and sending it to, forwarding it to some of the students and to other teachers in there. This is this is just one little thing that's being accomplished over there in loose gravel Montana. Somebody asked me, is Whitehall a small town? I said, well, the dryer, clothes dryer in our laundromat is a clothesline. Yeah, we're kind of small. So, uh, but that work is being accomplished and it's not our work over there. It's our work. You're doing that. You're helping with that. And God bless you for it. Romans. Let's look at a couple of passages. Romans chapter 3. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Would you turn there, please? Everybody, put your eyes on the page. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Most of our time will be in the book of Romans, because we're looking at how Paul uses uh, this word, righteousness, in the book. I don't know if this passage ever created problems for you. It certainly did for me. Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Then in verse 8, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? So that's look at some of the terms that he uses about what we were. In verse uh, 6, we were helpless. Verse 8, sinners. Verse 10, enemies. And yet Jesus died for us anyway. That's not the way we treat people whom we view as helpless and sinners and enemies. But it's the way we ought to. What I want is verse 7. Look at this. 
pay attention to this passage. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Isn't that backwards? Isn't that backwards? Wouldn't you not die for the good man, but you would maybe die for the righteous man? Isn't that 180 degrees out? Couldn't figure that out. Had to study righteousness a lot to see what in the world that was talking about. He's dealing now not with perfection or even justification. He's dealing with uh, right living righteousness. And that word shows up sometimes in Scripture. Gives us fits. We can't figure out what to do with it. This is the only righteousness that Paul talks about that is not 100% righteous. So I want to get it out of the way and get on to the meat of the matter. A couple of instances of this. In um, Matthew chapter 1 verse 19, it says that Joseph, he would become the earthly father of Jesus and eventually the husband of Mary. Matthew chapter 1 verse 19, uh, he is called righteous. Well, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. It means that he was living right. Right living righteousness. Okay? Not perfect. Just trying to be righteous. Trying to make right decisions. Again, what our brother was talking about at the table needs to be characteristic that we have. Luke chapter 1, verse 6, we read about um, uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, uh, the parents of John the Immerser, right? And we read about him. We know that Elizabeth is a praying person. We know that. Because when she's done praying, her husband doesn't get to talk for a couple months. Right? So she's hitting her knees. Yeah? Alright. So prayer works, ladies. <laughs> Count on it. Yeah. But that's right living righteousness. It's not the way Paul uses the word righteous in other places. Want to get to those? Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So this is point 2, actually, probably point 3 or 4, but in the outline it's point 2. This is God's personal righteousness, which is His nature. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. You there? All right. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. He's talking about justification a little bit here. He's talking about uh, Jesus being portrayed publicly, you know, as propitiation for us. Verse 23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, By God the Father's grace, not Jesus' grace, not here. But God the Father's grace, whom, verse 25, God displayed publicly as a propitiation, 50 cent word. Restitution plus satisfaction equals propitiation. Under the old law, trespass offering. I steal your cow, I eat your cow. You come home from vacation, wonder where your cow is. I say, I don't know, he got away. But I'm on the chaise lounge, barbecue still smoking. There's there's 25 empty A1 bottles there, and I'm picking my teeth. I haven't seen your cow. 
No idea where it went. Well, I stole your cow, and I'm lying about it. I need to offer trespass offering, but before I can do that, I have to make restitution plus satisfaction. I have to give you a cow of equal value, determined by the shekel of the sanctuary, plus 20%, one-fifth more. Restitution plus satisfaction equals propitiation. My favorite scripture in all of the Bible is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Quit sinning. Don't do it. But if we sin, we have an advocate, parakletos, lawyer, defense counsel, uh, one called alongside to help, and who is propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not that he merely paid for your sins and my sins and Christian sins. It doesn't even mean that he paid for the sins of the whole world. It means that in his blood, he paid for the sins of the whole world plus 20%, one-fifth more. You know people, I know people who believe when you begin to study the Bible with them, even start to, they'll say, ah, man, I've done things God will never forget. There's your verse. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He paid for your sins plus 20%. Ah, favorite passage. My favorite passage in all of the Scripture, and there's a reason that I went there, but I have no idea what it was. God's personal Righteousness is his nature. Oh, that's what I wanted. Verse 26. Uh, for, I was dealing with propitiation, wasn't I? Yeah, I covered that so well. I impressed even myself. Verse 25 again. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly through faith. This was to demonstrate his, the Father's, righteousness. Because in the foreparents of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his, the Father's, Righteousness at the present time, that he, the Father, might be just and be the justifier uh, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's God's personal nature to be righteous. All kinds of passages talk about that. Uh, uh, James chapter, First uh, John chapter one verse five, and this is the message we heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is righteous; it's His nature to be righteous; it's His character to be righteous. Uh, Gen- uh, James chapter one verse seventeen: uh, Every um, uh, good gift is stu- bestowed; every perfect gift comes down uh, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. God's right, uh, nature to be righteous. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. He says, Thine eyes are too pure to look upon evil, and you canst not look on wickedness with favor. Um, Romans chapter 9 verse 14. Paul says, uh, What should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God is 100% righteous because it's His nature to be righteous. Okay? Second one. Jesus' righteousness. Wow. If you just got through talking about God's personal righteousness, which is by nature, why do you have to talk about 
Jesus' righteousness. Because on earth, while on earth, Jesus' righteousness was by performance. Got to look at a couple passages there. It's a different kind of righteousness. Both of them are 100%, but it's a different kind of righteousness. It's God's nature to be righteous. Jesus, while he is here, his righteousness is by performance. <coughs> so it's a little bit different. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 18. If I'm going to high center, it's going to be right here. If I'm going to high center in this sermon, if you don't make it to the restaurant before the Baptist, it'll be because of this passage right here. <laughs> I love this. This is the, from verse 12 on in Romans chapter 5. Hear me on this. Exegetically, from a Greek scholastic standpoint, Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to the end of the chapter are either the most difficult passage in your New Testament. Forget Revelation. That's a piece of cake compared to this. This is either the most difficult passage in your Bible or it's the second most difficult passage. I said in your Bible, in your New Testament. It's complicated. And we just bounce right through it. We skip across it. We're not going to have time to delve into it as much as I would love to in the time we've got now, but you can. Look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, so this is a conclusionary statement, just as through one man sin entered the world, who's that, Adam, and death through sin, the death he's talking about here is spiritual death, not physical death, he'll make that point if we are paying attention to it. Uh, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Next word, nevertheless. Or your version may say still. Or even so. These are contrasting conjunctions. Verse 12 begins with therefore. So he's continuing a thought. And in, in verse 14 he starts it out saying, Nevertheless, so that's not continuing a thought. That's arguing with the thought. It's a contrasting conjunction. We try to make it too many. Try to make it the same. Beginning from here on, I know of five denominations who get their genesis from the next few passages. This is not lightweight stuff. You really do need to roll up the sleeves of your mind if you're going to dig stuff out of here. But look at what he says. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over the, those of the likeness, of, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. What we do often is turn this into some kind of syllogism. You know what syllogism is? It's a way of reasoning. You've got a major premise, then a minor premise, and then a conclusion. Uh, major premise, dogs have four legs. Minor premise, Fido is a dog. Conclusion, no, I did that wrong. Correct that, fix it, erase it. All right. Dogs have four legs. Fido has four legs, therefore, Fido is a dog. But it doesn't, but other things have, that's an incorrect conclusion. I don't know if Fido's a dog or not. He could be a cat. Cats have four legs. He could be a hamster. Hamster have four legs. He could be a gerbil. 
Gerbils, what's the difference between a hamster and a gerbil? Do you know? Gerbils have a longer tail, and there's more dark meat on a gerbil than there is on a hamster. Been my experience. Don't try this at home. (laughs) But that syllogism thing doesn't work. So what we're saying is uh, sin is not imputed um, where there is no law, but everybody dies from Adam to Moses. Therefore, there was law. And while that's true, it's not what he's saying. No law is the way, and Paul uses this several times, <coughs> it's a location. It's not just a concept. Where is there no law? Well, where there's grace. That's where there's no law. Not to say that you and I, covered by grace, are without law. We have law. We just don't have the law. We don't have Mosaic law. We have the law of the liberty of life in Christ. We have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. You understand there's a difference here. Here's what I want us to see. That this uh, stuff right here has to do with um, participation. Read on. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. When you first sinned, it was not in the likeness of Adam's offense. My first sin was not like Adam's sin. I wasn't stealing apples off trees, if in fact it was an apple. But my sin did not bring sin into the world. Neither did yours. My sin uh, uh, was not made in the presence of perfection. Neither was yours. Adam's sin is considerably different from ours. But I get the benefits and the condemnation of Adam's sin when I participated in Adam's sin, even though I didn't do it in exactly the same way. You don't inherit sin. That's Ezekiel chapter 18. All souls are mine. The soul that sins will die. And then later in Ezekiel chapter 18, he goes on to say, uh, the, the son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity. Right? The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself. And the unrighteousness of the unrighteous will be on himself. You know, So the idea of me inheriting a sin from another person flies in the face of what God has to say. I had to participate in sin in order to join the sinner's club. And I did. You know, been trying to get out of it ever since. Met the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, here, let me give you a hand. Same thing he's doing with you and me. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Remember I said these are contrasting conjunctions? It's not like the transgression. And look down in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Verse 17. But if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Christ Jesus. What I want us to see is in uh, verse 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through, look at this, through one act 
of righteousness. There resulted justification of life to all men. I thought everything Jesus did was righteous. What one act of righteousness is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. That act of righteousness. How do I know that? Because he doesn't stop there. He goes on into chapter 6. Where he talks about how you and I participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That act of righteousness. It's not specific what our act of unrighteousness was, but we had one. We participated in Adam's unrighteousness, even though we didn't do it in precisely the same way. We participated. That killed us. And we participate in Jesus' act of righteousness, His death, burial, and resurrection, even though we don't do it in the same way. And that results in our justification, our righteousness, because of His righteousness. A couple other passages. Scribble these down if you want. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus is being baptized, or about to be baptized, by John the Baptist, and he says, man, you should be doing this to me, uh, you know. And uh, Jesus says, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. If you write in your Bible, circle the word all. It's being said now that as long as a person is immersed, it doesn't make any difference what they know. They don't have to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus didn't have any sins, and he was baptized. It's the same thing that we do. It is not the same thing that we do. When you and I were immersed into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, it was for our sins. It was to uh, purchase our, to, to get on the bus with Jesus who purchased our righteousness. <coughs> Matthew chapter 3 verse 15 Jesus' baptism is to fulfill all righteousness. And you didn't do that, you couldn't do that. I didn't do that, I couldn't do that. So Jesus' immersion is symbolic of what we do. But it's not a pattern for what we do. It's a little bit different. Jesus' righteousness is by performance. John chapter 8, verse 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? How many people held up their hands? Nobody. No one could convict him of, of sins. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 uh, and following, Jesus is our high priest, a man tempted in us as all things, just like we were, yet without sin. Jesus is sinless. He's not sin. Get this. He is not sinless because he is God on earth. He's not. Because we're told to be sinless. If Jesus is able to reject temptation from the devil, I'm not pointing at you, Cindy. When If Jesus is able to reject the devil by means of some power given to him, but not to you and me, then he is not my example. Jesus rejects the entreaties of the devil because I stay, he says, I stand looking into heaven 
And whatever I see my Father doing, that's what I do. And you and I in our Bibles get to stand looking into heaven. It's a window. It's a glass. <coughs> we can see what our Father is doing and then go ahead and do that. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. You and I can make that choice. In fact, we do make that choice maybe dozens of times per day. How are we doing so far? See, we, Jesus doesn't sin, chooses not to sin because of his performance. I'm not going to do that. That's not pleasing to my Father, so I'm not going to do it. Jesus' righteousness is by performance. Um, he, he never sinned. Um, when an animal was going to be chosen for a sin offering, at least three times, depending on the sacrifice, depending on who's offering it, at least three times that animal had to be, that sacrifice, had to be certified as being without blemish. Now we're talking about sin offerings here. In the peace offerings, some blemishes were allowed. But that's, that's a worship service, not an atonement sacrifice. Alright. When Jesus, before his crucifixion, seven times, it is said, you know, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate says. Pilate says, neither does Herod. <coughs> if there was some guilt in Jesus, I'm thinking Herod and Pilate would have keyed in on that. I find this man deserving nothing, has done nothing, deserving of death. Seven times he is shown to be sinless. Jesus is 100% righteous and that is by performance. I need to scurry along. Uh, chapter 7, turn the page, go to chapter 7. Look at this. Now you know what's happening here, or if you don't, you ought to read chapter 7. But I want us to key in on verse 9. So we got God's personal righteousness, which is 100%. We have Jesus' righteousness, which is 100%, which is by performance. And now in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, look at what he says. He says, and I, Paul, was once alive apart from the law. What? How'd you pull that off? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And he defends that. But when was, G when was Paul alive apart from the law? When he was a kid. When he was a child. Remember me mentioning uh, Ezekiel chapter 18? The idea of children not inheriting Adam's sin or their parents' sin or anything else? Paul didn't either. There was a time apart from the law when he was alive. And he was alive because of innocence. How innocent is a baby? 100%. How righteous is a baby? 100%. So we got God's personal righteousness, which is his nature. Jesus' righteousness, 100%, which is by performance. We have a child's personal righteousness, which is just a matter of innocence, and then uh, we got to figure out what we're going to do with us once I get this peeled. I get to preach, I always stick one of these things in my mouth, and when it dissolves, the sermon's over. Yeah, And I have learned that if I do this wrong, I can preach for two and a half hours and then pretend to realize that, hey, that wasn't a lossage, it was a button. Here we go. What we have left is imputed righteousness. <clears throat> this is the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of our faith. 
Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We already cited it. Romans, put your eyes on the page. We're nearly done. Did I say nearly done? I'm almost a third done. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, uh, he's writing to Christians, right? Uh, Those in Rome, beloved of God, called as saints. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, For all who believe, for there is no distinction. So there is a righteousness that is imputed, or your version may say attributed. That's that's an accounting thing. I apologize for this. I've got some post-nasal drip and I tried all kinds of things, make it quit. The only thing that actually works, I used to be a nurse, but the only thing that I know that works 100% of the time for post-nasal drip is decapitation. That works 100%, 100% of the time. I want you to, we're going to have to quit. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, written by the same author, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Go to Philippians chapter 3, and let's see what he has to say about this um, <coughs> imputed righteousness thing. Romans chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 3 is kind of Paul's resume. He's defending um, his uh, CV, I guess you would say. But I want you to see, we'll jump ahead, to about um, verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, these th- those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Are you there? I see too many faces. Get them on the page. Verse 8, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, <laughs> in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. That sounds terribly British, doesn't it? Uh, the word here in Greek is dung. It's manure. Right? I wish that he just put it that way. What I was worthy of, was not rubbish. What I contributed to my life by not listening to God was not merely rubbish. And that's what Jesus took away from me, the dung, the manure. And I didn't trade him. Make a deal with you, Jesus. You take this wagon load of dung, give me a wagon load of gold. We'll call that a trade. That's not a trade, that's redemption. Now anyway, he goes on. Not having, let's see, um, suffer the loss of all things, count them but rubbish, in order to gain Christ. Verse 9 is what I want, and um, down to verse 11. And may be found in Him, look it, look it, look it, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That what? The righteousness, and he's going to say it right here. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. <coughs> Imputed righteousness. Well, God's righteousness, his nature is 100%. Jesus' righteousness, which is by performance, is 100%. 
child's righteousness by innocence is 100%. Paul's not God, and neither are we. So that 100% righteousness is not available to us. It's not our nature. Our performance is not 100%. And we're not kids anymore. The only righteousness available to the Apostle Paul, and to you and to me, is the one that he talks about right here. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the only option that we have. So when Paul talks about righteousness for us, it's this imputed righteousness. It's this attributed righteousness. So my question to you is, how righteous are you? If God's 100% righteous, and Jesus is 100% righteous, and a child is 100% righteous, and the, well, how, how right, and this, this imputed righteousness is 100%, how righteous are you? 100%. We don't like that. It's true. It's what he teaches. But we dig in our heels. No, that can't be me. Our righteousness is 100%. Our performance isn't. Part of our sanctification is bring our day-to-day lives, our choices that we make, we bring them into line with the justification that has been purchased for us. And that justification, that righteousness is 100%. Our sanctification may not be. Well, in fact, it isn't. (coughs) Man, it isn't. This is God's way of telling me to shut up. You didn't have to agree with that quite so fast. How righteous are you? When we have every reason to believe that's the truth. When we look at what the scriptures have to say and don't listen to our own doubts and our own histories and our own shame and hear what Satan is whispering in our ears rather than what God is saying through his word and his spirit that dwells within us. How righteous are you? You're 100% righteous. You're as righteous as a newborn baby. If you have this imputed righteousness, you are as righteous as if your behavior, your performance was 100%. We don't like to hear that. In Mark chapter 2, a bunch of fellows are trying to bring a paralytic guy to Jesus, and they can't get through because of the crowd. So what do they do? Well, they dig a hole in this guy's roof. And they lower him down there. My question is, does that come under an act of God in that fellow's homeowner policy? That's what I want to know. Scripture doesn't tell me. He gets down there. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your pallet and walk after a little discussion here and there. And the guy gets up, walks over. He's got the pallet underneath his... I don't know what that looks like, but he's got the pallet underneath. He's walking away. If someone went up to him, if someone went up to him and said, are you saved... What would he say? Oh, I sure hope so. Oh man, I, 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 I'm trying. I sure hope I'm saved. I hope I'm doing enough to get to heaven. He would not have said that. Yeah. That guy over there who healed my paralysis said that my sins are gone. The guy who heals our spiritual paralysis says our sins are gone. Gotta quit. Somebody pull the plug on that. Back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where we started. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. What are you going to do about that? Well, we just talked about what you do. Your righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That makes me feel pretty good. My performance needs to improve. My righteousness is a matter of Jesus' justification. It's a, it's a matter of Jesus' sinlessness. It's a matter of his Father's nature in imputing that righteousness to me. It's a matter of him looking at you and me as a child of God. And we are 100 percent righteous. Don't get cocky. Don't get arrogant. You can throw it away. You can walk away from it if you want to. But that would be foolish. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a great passage. Uh, <coughs> Romans chapter 1 verse 17 where, uh, where Paul uh, quotes Habakkuk and he says, and the righteous man will live by faith he was a missionary to uh, Italy for 20-something years. His name was Truman Scott. And Truman's paraphrase of this was the best I ever heard. Couldn't figure out. The righteous man will live by faith. That means if you never do anything wrong, you get to live. But if you ever do anything wrong, he will squash you like a grape and you deserve it. Truman was the one who pointed out we were looking at this idea of righteousness. The imputed Righteousness, And this is what Truman said, what he did with that passage in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, which you should look at later. And the one to whom, he says the righteous man shall live by faith. Yeah? The one to whom, God speaking, and the one to whom I attribute righteousness on the basis of his faith, he is the one who will live. And I thought, that works. That's it. If on the basis of our faith, God is able to impute to us his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of a child, that we live. Otherwise, we don't. We just don't. All right. There's a time change today, right? i got another hour. Uh, this is a wonderful thing. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 is frightening. My righteousness has to exceed them and yours does as well. But because of what Jesus has done for us, our righteousness does. So how are we supposed to deal with other people out there? We're supposed to deal with them in a righteous way. Even if they're enemies. Even if they're sinners. We're to reflect God's glory to them. To show that uh, our God is a not-of-the-earth God and that we, in worshiping Him, are a not-of-the-earth people. You can worship any God you want to. But God says, you want to worship, I'm holy. You want to worship me, you're going to have to be holy. How are you going to be that? I think that's what he's talking about. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That brings us into contact with the blood that takes away our sins. Haven't done that yet. You better look at Matthew chapter 5. I would suggest that you look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 with a critical eye.
This is available to you. It's available to everyone. What Jesus did on the cross for us, <coughs> we have done an extremely good job, I believe, in the brotherhood. We've done an outstanding job of communicating to people what happened on the cross when Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected, that he took away our sins. We've done it out more than about anybody on the planet. We've done an outstanding job in communicating that. But that's half of the gospel. The other half, of, otherwise, next time I send, he'd have to go back to the cross again. Hebrews writer is making the point he doesn't have to do that. So, Dufford, your thinking is wrong. Right? Half of the gospel, Jesus takes away my sins. Second half of the good news, his righteousness is imputed to us. Ah, that's good news. You want to be part of that, make it known as, well, first of all, if you already are, press on and drag as many people with you as you can. If you're not yet a part of it, you want to be part of it, then come down the aisle here as we stand and as we sing. That second hand is not moving. Somebody stop that clock? Honestly, did somebody stop it? God bless you if you did. Yeah. Maestro, if you please. We heard the calling, come follow me. And we see where thy footprints falling, leave.